My primary responsibilities with Jacob, Jacob's Well is with Lamp Seminary, but I do get to preach on occasion, such as today when Dan's away. Dan's away and the assistants get to play, so glad to be able to preach in his absence. Dan has begun a series on the book of Genesis, kind of picking up where he had left off before. This morning I'm going to be preaching from Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. And this is the account of Noah entering the ark and the coming of the waters that created the flood. Genesis 7, let me begin reading with verse 1. I'll read through the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that uh, the Lord had commanded him, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And on the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all the flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the water prevailed so mightily that the earth, on the earth, that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind." Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is a sad passage in many ways. But there are things that we see in this passage which give us hope and encouragement as we see the work of the Lord. 
If you've been in church any length of time, you probably have heard any number of, of Bible lessons or Sunday school lessons on this account of Noah and the animals entering the ark. And you've probably seen pictures of uh, how people imagine the ark to be. Uh, you have the animals that march onto the ark and all of that kind of thing. And that's here. That's all in the passage. But I think that we need to be careful that we don't only focus on one thing and miss other things that are in the passage, which may even be more important than the account of the animals and the water and the ark itself. I remember when I first moved to St. Louis with my wife, was new to the Midwest at the time, I was going to Covenant Seminary, and some friends of ours were going to show us around the area where we were living. And one of the highlights was a, a, a fairly new shopping center. It was called Northwest Plaza. It's an old shopping center today, but back then it was supposed to be brand new. And we're driving along, and then they were t- telling us about the area and said, we're kind of moving now into the shopping area. And up ahead a little bit, you'll see uh, the new shopping center. My wife and I were sitting in the back of their, their car. I was on the left side. I remember that. And I'm looking up ahead, trying to see the shopping center, and I see this old Kmart. It was in a little strip mall, and there was a shoe store, I think, and a beauty salon, some other things. And I'm looking, I say, man, I've seen better-looking stores than that. And they were just going on, and, oh, there it is, there it is, you can see it. And they're going uh, ballistic over how great this shopping area is. And I'm looking at the Walmart, and I'm saying, I don't know, I... I, I I don't know. It just doesn't seem that impressive to me. And my wife looked over and saw I was looking in the wrong direction. She said, no, look out the right side of the car. And looked out the right side of the car and said, whoa, here's this vast complex and uh, the center, whatever they call that, where you enter, looked kind of like a spaceship to me. And it was really elaborate, pretty nice. Now, was a Kmart there? It was. And the shoe store and the beauty salon, those other, they were there. But I was focusing on that and missing something that was probably even more important than the Kmart. So we don't want to focus on the animals this morning, at least I don't. But I do want to focus on God. God was gracious and just to Noah and his sons and wives And through Noah, the rest of us. God is gracious and just. Last week, Dan explained that violence had taken over the earth. People were wicked. Violence was rampant. The Lord could have said, that's it. Everybody's toast. I don't have to be gracious. I don't have to save anybody. That's it. They don't deserve my goodness. But he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to save a people for myself. I'm going to save Noah. And that promised Redeemer is going to come through Noah. So God is both gracious and just, as we see in this passage. As verse 1 begins, it says, And then the Lord said to Noah. 
And if you're using an English Bible, I imagine that the word Lord is written in all capital letters. Although the O-R-D may be a little bit smaller than the L, but they're all capital letters. And whenever you see that in the English Bible, in the Old Testament, what that means is this is the very name of God. Yahweh. We sometimes say Jehovah, but Yahweh is probably closer to how the original would be pronounced. This is the name that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush, where God says, I am that I am. Often we think that all that means is God is saying, I'm self-existent. I've always been, I always will be, I am. And while that is certainly there, there is more to his name than just that. Because Moses had said, when I go back to my people and everything, and I talk to Pharaoh, and they say, well, you know, who sent you? What authority do you have to come and, and, uh, and ask me to release all of these slaves? He says, tell them that I am sent you. Tell them that Yahweh has sent you. Very often, God's personal name is coupled with one of his actions, such as in Genesis 22, where we have that name Jehovah-Jireh, where the Lord was to sacrifice Isaac, and then the Lord provided a lamb or a ram in his place, jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. In Exodus 17, after the people of Israel had left Egypt, they encountered various enemies. At one point they were fighting Amalek. And whenever Moses would raise his arms, the Israelites would prevail. But when he got tired and his arms fell, Amalek and his army would prevail. And that's the passage where Aaron and Hur hold up his arms so he didn't fall, so Israel would have the victory. And there Moses called the place Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner because the Lord is the one who gives us the victory. And Judges, after Gideon encounters the angel of the Lord, he says, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. As the Lord brought peace to Gideon, as Gideon was in turmoil because of uh, the Amalekites who were who had overrun the land. In Ezekiel, the very last verse of that book, as we see the city of God, much like we would see in in the book of Revelation, Ezekiel says, "The Lord is there." Jehovah Shammah. In Jeremiah chapter 23, in a passage that is a promise of the coming of the righteous branch, the Lord is revealed as Jehovah Tizkenu, the Lord our righteousness. So when you think of God's name, don't only think of God as being the self existent one. He's that. But also think of him as the God who 
acts. The God who's capable of carrying out his will, of doing all that he desires to do. A passage that I, I, I like, there are a number of passages I really just like to read, I, I think about at different times. That passage is in the book of First Kings, chapter 18, the, the passage about Elijah. Elijah came on the scene at a very dark time in the history of Israel. Ahab is the king, Jezebel is the queen, they're wicked people. And there are a number of things that happened under the ministry of Elijah, but one of the, the key things is a big showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The nation, except for a few, had gone over to worship Baal, a false god. And Elijah is trying to bring people back to true worship of Yahweh or Jehovah. So he says, let's have a contest to see which God is really God. He says, we'll each take a bull, we'll each build an altar, put wood on it, cut the animals up, put them on the animal, and then we'll pray to our God. And the God that answers by fire to consume the sacrifice is the true God. And the prophets of Baal say, hey, that's a good idea. We'll do it. Elijah said, there are more of you, so you go first. So they get everything ready. And for hours, they're calling upon Baal to send fire to consume their sacrifice. And Elijah taunts them. He mocks them. He makes fun of them. And especially the inability of their God to answer he says, well, you know, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you need to shout a little bit louder, wake him up. Or maybe he's, you know, he's a busy, busy person. Maybe he's on a trip and a little bit out of range of your, of your shout. So, you know, maybe shout even louder and try to get his attention so he'll come back and, and drop the fire. But the time expired that they had and no fire fell. Elijah prepared his animal on the altar. He had water brought in and more water brought in and more water brought in, dumped over the animal, over the wood, over the stones. And he built a little trench around it filled up the trench. And Elijah prayed a very short prayer asking God to show that he was the true God and send the fire and fire fell. And it consumed everything. It consumed the animal. It consumed the wood. It consumed the rocks. consumed the water. And the response of the people is very telling. They said, the Lord, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And for a short time, they were brought back to a true worship of God. Well, in Genesis 7, there are several verses that show God as a God who acts. In verse 1, it says, God says, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And take the animals and so forth. He had given directions on how to build the ark. 
And now he says, I want you to go into the ark. We might almost say, what he's saying is, I want you to come to me. But God speaks and he says to Noah, go into the ark and you'll be saved. He also says, take the animals and all of this. He gives them instruction about that. And Noah did just that. Several of the commentators I was reading said, it's rather interesting when you read this passage because what seemed to be the case is that Noah didn't have to run out and try to round up all these animals, you know, herd cats to get them on the ark and pick up snakes and drag them aboard or anything like that. It said it appears as though these animals knew that danger was coming and so they willingly walked onto the ark. Now, that was God's doing, obviously. But the Lord preserved the animals as he had them come into the ark. Verse 4, we see that God sends the rain. And not just rain that fell from the sky, but heavy rain. said so the windows of heaven were open. That's the figurative language, obviously. We, we even use that type of language today when we talk about how hard it's raining. But not only that, the fountains of the great deep burst open and underground water also came up to add to the mixture. And the whole world was covered with a flood and all of life that breathes died except those who were on the ark. And in verse 16... after we said that everybody into the ark was going to go in. Verse 16 says, The Lord shut him in. Yahweh shut him in. We're not told exactly what type of a door that they had, but we know enough about ships or boats to know that you need to have a door above the water line, so it had to be up a little ways whether it was a big gangway going up uh, made out of wood or maybe an earthen ramp or maybe Noah built this by the side of a hill and there was a catwalk out to it. We don't know. But they went into the ark and the Lord shut the door. Noah and his family and those animals were safe inside the ark. But the opportunity for deliverance for those who were outside is now gone. One hundred and twenty years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Anyone who wanted to could have gone on the ark, but they didn't. And that opportunity for salvation was brought to an end by God Himself not by Noah. Knowing human nature, my guess is there were people who were there watching what was going on. And there were probably even some who said, you know, Noah's kind of a crazy old dude, but, you know, maybe, just maybe, what he's saying is right. There's going to be a big flood coming, and and I'll just kind of wait and see, and when the waters start to come, I'll run on, on board and, and be okay. But the Lord 
eliminated that option because once Noah and the animals are bored, he closed the door or he shut them in, it says. And whenever anything comes to an abrupt end, we usually are kind of shocked by that. I remember a few years ago, I was looking at a pair of shoes. I think it was at Kohl's. And you always wait till you get one of those, you know, high discount coupons to go and buy something. Like the 30%, that's what we always like. And they were having one of these early bird sales, and I think I had one of those coupons from something. And, and I think this said the sale ended at 2 p.m. I remember that Saturday, I was busy doing things, and I kept saying, you don't need to go down and get those shoes. And I said, I'll do it later. But I got down there about 1 o'clock, so I got plenty of time, picked up the shoes, was looking around other stuff, and then went up to check out. And the shoes didn't ring up at that discounted price. And I said, hey, wait a minute, I have an early bird sale and all that. She said, it's already over. I said, what? She said, says, it goes on to 2. She said, no, you look at your coupon or you look at your postcard. It was 2 p.m. Eastern time. And we were in central time. And as much as I prevailed upon her, she said, no. That sale is done. You missed it. You know, she wasn't rude like that. But she, she was very, very blunt that I should have gotten in earlier. And she was right. I remember a time with an elder from my church. We were visiting someone and we were sharing the gospel with them. And it was a, a, a younger man. He was very nice. He seemed very interested in what we were saying. But he made it clear that he did not want to receive Christ as his Savior, at least not at this point, because he said, there are things I want to do. There are things I want to do. And I almost asked him, well, what do you want to do? If, you know, I go to Europe for a vacation or raft down the Colorado River, something like that. You can be a Christian and do that. But something in my mind said, no, if anything is more important to him than Christ, that's wrong. Christ has to be the most important thing in his life. Hopefully, the Lord worked in his life. He came to faith, but at least at that moment in time, he said no. Because what I want to do is more important in Christ. God reveals to us that He is a God who is a God who is able to act. He has a concern and love for us that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. He sent a Savior who bore our sins when He died on the cross. The punishment we deserved, He took upon Himself. And the Lord invites us to come to Him. And to put our faith and our trust in Him. In this passage, we learn, as we look at the New Testament, that God uses Noah and the flood and the ark as a type. Now, some people make everything in the Old Testament a type. I don't know that we should do that. 
but I've heard people speaking to say, you know, this this is a type of the church and, and its wickedness, or this is a type of something. Or, you know, I always wonder, what about, you know, Jacob and Esau? Jacob had smooth skin, Esau was hairy. How is that a type? Well, it's not. But when the New Testament speaks of an Old Testament passage and said, this is like Christ or God's judgment or God's salvation, then we know that that Old Testament person or event is a picture of Christ or the salvation God has or the judgment God is going to bring. Knowing the ark are examples of God's grace. Now, our time is getting a little bit short, I realize, but I want to run through at least a couple things here pretty quickly. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, Noah is referred to as a person of righteousness. God warned Noah. God gave him instructions about the ark, and Noah built it. And Noah believed God. Noah's salvation came by virtue of his faith. He was a person of faith. And he's an example of God's work and God's salvation which is realized in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 3.2 and 2 Peter 2.5, in both of those passages, we find that, that the floodwaters are likened to, to baptism and that God knows how to rescue people from, from evil and from destruction. And what God would do with Noah is a type of his work today. The flood is also a picture of God's judgment. Both Matthew and Luke refer to it as such. We look at Noah and we see a picture of what God is going to do later. And in Jesus Christ, God saves us from the great destruction as he forgives us our sins. An architect will sometimes make a model of a building that he's designed for his client. And when the client looks at this building, he can get the shape and the dimension and everything. And then when the building is actually built later on, he can compare the model to the building. And, and it's uncanny how often that model is, is exactly like the building that's built, because that's what architects do, I suppose. Well, God has given us pictures or models in the Old Testament of his work. Something which is tangible that points to something which is future. You might say, yeah, but no, that's just sort of a fanciful story. It's not real. So you're trying to make Take just some of which is a myth and draw some spiritual lessons out of it. And for a long time, that's what scholars thought of ancient stories. They were just myths. But in more recent times, scholars have come to a realization that ancient stories really were stories that people used to remember real events. I don't know if you know it or not, but other ancient civilizations have a flood account. The Babylonians did, the Egyptians did, 
It's uncanny how similar they are. I, th- I think it was the Egyptian count, though. Instead of knowing making wine and getting drunk, he made beer. If we were telling us in Wisconsin, I guess that's what we would say too, probably. But, but it's really a real story. It's why people from different nations have it as a reminder of God's judgment and his goodness to one family. And in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of our sins, which saves us from the ultimate flood of God's judgment. God is still a God of grace and judgment. In Hebrews 9, verse 27, we're told that God's judgment is coming. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And when you think about that, this puts to rest a lot of the ideas that people have, such as reincarnation, you know, where our soul just kind of recycled and comes back time after time. It doesn't happen. We live one time, but after that is a judgment. And we have security in Christ, knowing that we can face the judgment and not be fearful because our sins are forgiven, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. Jesus died as an atonement for our sins. We have real sin and real guilt that Jesus took upon himself and his death appeased God's wrath as he bore that wrath in our place. And God's invitation is that we come to him and embrace him and be part of that number that's eagerly awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ. God offers us something which is of great value. Some years ago, my wife and I lived in New Orleans. We lived there almost 10 years. And I remember very clearly one of our neighbors, and we got to know them reasonably well while we lived there. And they were part of one of the Mardi Gras crews. Now, a crew, is spelled K-R-E-W-E, is the organization that puts on the various parades. But a lot takes place other than just what happens on Mardi Gras Day. Starting on January the 6th, King's Day, until uh, the day before Ash Wednesday, is the carnival season. So during that time, there's all kinds of stuff that takes place, a lot of social events and so forth. And our neighbors offered us tickets to a ball that their crew would put on every year. And I said, well, let me think about it. And my wife and I talked about it, and I inquired of somebody. And he said, well, the way they do a ball is you don't go and dance or stuff like that. The people who are part of the crew do that. You kind of go and sit in a gallery and watch everything. And as I was explaining, I said, well, I don't want to do that. So we go back to our neighbors and said, no, we're, we're really not interested. Maybe you can give those tickets to somebody else. And I remember how shocked she was that we would turn down those tickets. I remember how shocked some of the people in the church were when he said, hey, you know, they invited us to this ball and we turned it down. They said, you did what? That's like the social event of the year. This is where all the movers and shakers of the community are. I said, yeah, but they said, somebody said, we just sit and watch everybody. I said, yeah, but they have food and drink and everything like that. And it's a, it's a very significant time. It's when people make contact with one another. You're not just sitting there watching people dance. 
I said, oh, I made a mistake, I guess. I don't think our neighbors ever spoke to us again. Because we insulted them beyond measure by saying, no, we're not interested in, in that. Now, just say this is a disclaimer. You've probably heard about Mardi Gras. There's a lot more to Mardi Gras than just all the the dirty, perverse stuff that usually makes the news. But as I thought about that that time when I turned down that invitation, I'm reminded of the account and the parable that Jesus gives in the Gospels. The king prepared the great banquet, invited people to come. And people said, no, I've got other things to do. I'm busy and places to go and all that kind of stuff. And they didn't come. And the king's wrath was just enraged. And he says, I will deal with those people in a way that's appropriate. And when we turn away from the salvation God offers, we are insulting him. He has provided something very gracious for us, but many people say, I don't want anything to do with it. I have too many sins to come to God. Or maybe I'm not one of the elect, so I don't know if I could be saved anyway. Or the things I want to do before I trust Christ. Remember that God doesn't offer Salvation to us and forgiveness because we're good, but because we are wicked and evil and sinful. We need that forgiveness. Are you one of the elect? I don't know. But I can say this. If you want the forgiveness that God offers, you can have it. Just call on the name of the Lord. Tell Him you know that you're a sinner and ask for forgiveness. And turn from your sins. I said earlier, nothing is more important than Jesus Christ. Again, in Hebrews, the writer quoting from one of the Psalms says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hear his voice and respond accordingly as God has acted and offers forgiveness on the basis of his action." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do thank you for the salvation that you provide through Jesus Christ. We thank you that as we look at this passage with Noah, that we do see your gracious actions and giving instruction about the ark. We see your judgment as you send the waters that destroy all, all breathing life. We see the end of opportunity as you are the one who shut Noah and his family in the ark. Father, help us not to have hard hearts as we hear of your grace. But I pray that you might open our hearts and soften our hearts. That we would respond and accept very thankfully the salvation that you have for us in Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.